Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development, with your host, Janice Palaganis, who is the Associate Professor of Health Professions Education and the Associate Director of the PhD Program in Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Welcome to What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. You're here with Janice Palagana and, and Peter Kahn. Hi, Peter. Podcast land. How have you been? Good. You know, I noticed one of our colleagues at the MGH Institute, Tiffany Hogan, who's a pioneer in podcasts for speech language pathology, issued a statement saying, I'm going to pause. COVID has just taken over everything and I need wow. to devote time to family and other projects. So I'm thinking of her. Oh, and, uh, we nice. would love to communicate as much as we can, but recognizing everyone's uh, talents and time are being stretched at this moment. You know, that that's a great topic that maybe we can talk about in this podcast or later on is, you know, when do you pause? Because there's there are many, you know, with some of the programs that we have run during this pandemic, part of the question has been, should we pause this and delay or wait till people are in better position? And I didn't know which way to go. And one of the courses that we offered, some of the feedback we got was, well, this this is this has been nice because it's been a mini mental vacation <laughs> away from what I have to deal with in my real life. So I'm hoping that people that are listening see this as, as a bit of a mini mental vacation. It certainly is for me to actually do these podcasts. So thank you for those listening and thank you for doing this with me, Peter. Well, of course, it's uh, important to prioritize your time. And this is something I always enjoy because I think, I mean, Josh, who we're going to speak to shortly, is someone I've known for a while, but in a very narrow context. So for me, I get to broaden my understanding of people who I think I know, but to get to see other facets of them. So with that, I would love to introduce Dr. Joshua Hartzell, and he is an adjunct professor with our Health Professions Education Program, also professor and assistant dean for faculty development at the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. And Josh, you're not just an internist and infectious disease physician, you are a lieutenant colonel I just feel so honored being with you right now. <laughs> and you're the program director of the National Capital Consortium Internal Medicine Residency Program at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Wow, that is a mouthful. <laughs> um, I would say that... Uh... I guess uh, one is I've been promoted uh, to Colonel, so that's uh, good news. Um, and then also... Oh, congratulations. Yeah, and then also just uh, to make clear, I think... So yeah, I am the program director now, and uh, the assistant dean was uh, a former former position. And, and maybe I should read my disclaimer up front as well, that everything I do say in this podcast will be the views in this presentation are those my own and not those of the official policy of the Department of Army, Navy, Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So, um, Josh, you also lead over 70 residents daily, helping them develop personally and professionally, preparing them to be effective leaders toward what you mentioned to be positive change. And 
I just wonder how an internist and infectious disease physician goes into leadership and faculty development and organizational change. I mean, I can see how I'm more interested in your story. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, for for me, I think one of the things that drew me to internal medicine in general was that it's a very academic specialty. And in that there was a lot of teaching. When I was a medical student, a lot of the role models that I looked up to were faculty members who did a lot of teaching, who were involved with the the clerkship rotations and uh, were, were involved with research. And I really felt like they spent a lot of time investing in uh, not only my my own sort of career, but you know all the students and residents that were with them. And I think, really, since that time, I've always thought, you know, that's something that I want to do is uh, not only take care of patients, but you know, give back to students, residents, fellows, others who are coming up behind us to try to help them be more effective at what they do. And then, at what point did the military come into your career? Yeah. So I actually, uh, you know, I I grew up in a very rural uh, area, didn't have a lot of military in my family, although some extended, you know, uncles and stuff had done it. My dad had been in the Air Force for a couple of years. But I think just growing up, I was interested in history and always sort of had read about the military. And, you know, I kind of was thinking about ways to get out of uh, sort of, you know, where I was at and and get some opportunities and decided I would pursue uh, the ROTC program. And, you know, I, I kind of make the joke that sometimes the second, actually the third flight I ever took was uh, at airborne school jumping out of planes. So like the first flight was to airborne school. There was two, there was a connector. So it was actually two flights. And then the third time I flew was uh, at airborne school jumping out of the plane. So I think a lot of the, you know, the opportunity of joining the military was just, you know, to sort of give me opportunities that I wasn't going to necessarily have otherwise. And it's really been you know, phenomenal. I can't say enough about military medicine and the opportunities that exist within it. Well, can you say about some of the distinctions? I know military medicine is a category, there are journals and research. How might it be different for someone from the outside looking in? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think, you know, when you when you think about what we do in terms of residents and graduates, so when you graduate from medical school, typically you're going to go to a practice and probably join a you know, for us, it would be a hospitalist group or a primary care practice. And and often you slowly then kind of work your way up over the course of your career. Uh, I think in, in military medicine, when you graduate, you very often go into a role that's a leadership position right off the bat, whether you're a, a service chief at a smaller hospital somewhere, you may be going with an operational unit where you're going to be in charge. You're the person that the command will look to to give them guidance on medical decisions that they're making. So I think, you know, one of the big distinctions is is that much earlier in your career, you're put in positions of leadership where you're the subject matter expert. And I think, you know, that's part of what we try to do in our residency programs is prepare our graduates for those types of situations that they're going to be facing really, you know, often day one or two when they when they graduate. When I was an infectious disease fellow and I graduated within a month, I was getting ready to deploy to go to Afghanistan. So you, you sort of have this expectation that your career is going to look a little different maybe than someone who goes to a, a civilian school who's going to again, you know, join a hospital or academic practice or private practice somewhere. So does your interest in your academic interest in leadership predate your involvement in the the military? Or as you say, that early introduction got you thinking about it? You know, I think looking back, it's it probably 
predates it somewhat. I mean, I've always been interested in leadership and history in general. I mean, even when I was in you know, high school and college, uh, I would read about military history, leaders. I think it's always been kind of an interest in the back of my mind. And then as I got a little bit older and got put in positions where I was actually doing more leading, I think I realized just how important it was to be more effective and thought like, boy, I need to learn more about this. So I took a, took a much deeper dive at that point. So thinking of the different pathways to come into your program, do you have residents who went to a civilian medical school and then chose that residency? And or are there people who do their military medical school and then continue their residency? And what's the distinction? Yeah, so we have two pathways. Uh, well, there's more than two, but the two main ones are the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. So they train roughly 160 to 170 students a year. And then, and that's Army, Navy, Air Force, Public Health Service. So they train all the, the different branches. And then the Health Profession Scholarship Program is the other way that the, uh, the military sort of brings their physicians in. Those scholarships are really available to any medical school. So Students get accepted to medical schools and then they can apply for the Army, Navy, or Air Force Health Professional Scholarship Program, uh, which is a tremendous way to get your medical school paid for. And then once you're done with medical school at whatever civilian school you go to, then you come on active duty. And typically, the majority of those folks will then come into military residency programs. So they'll do their medical school and then join us, say, at Walter Reed or at other hospitals in the Department of Defense to do their residency training. And then when they graduate, they go and serve at different military bases across the country or really across the globe. I'm just indulging my personal curiosity. One thing we hear with uh, medical students in particular is that the burden of debt influences their choice of specialty. So in your case, you're seeing students and residents who have service commitments, but maybe not the crushing debt. So are they choosing more primary care internal medicine roles as a result? Um, I would say it's still it's still not as much primary care. It's probably more so. I don't know the exact numbers. I definitely feel like there's less pressure. It also depends on how long you maybe plan on staying in the military. Certainly for someone like me who does infectious disease, who came out of college and medical school debt-free, uh, debt-free is relative term because I owed uh, 11 years of payback. So uh, you have to think about it in in, in, in those terms. But, uh, I, you know, I think it certainly creates a, an opportunity where you shouldn't feel pressured. And I know that, you know, uh, obviously some people do feel like, hey, I, I can't be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and, and pick a certain specialty that's going to, you know, unfortunately take years and years and years to pay back. I, 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 you know, I can't say enough good things about military medicine. You'll get phenomenal training You'll get outstanding opportunities when you're when you graduate, and then if if you decide to stay in for a career, that's you know that's great. If you decide to get out, you're going to be very well positioned. You're going to be solid clinically, and you're going to have leadership skills that you know most places that you're going to apply to go work for are going to be looking for. So it really it sets you up either way for success. That is my question, Josh. Is you know with your military background and your interest in positions of leadership, I'd be interested if, if you can share what you think you've learned around leadership that other residents wouldn't, you know, other people in a non-military pathway would not. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if say a non-military pathway wouldn't learn it. I mean, I think leadership in general is one of those things that, at least the more I think about it, you know, any anyone can become a more effective leader. It's just a desire 
to be more effective and really sort of dedicate some time and study to being an effective leader. You know, there's, there's so many different resources out there. I think a lot of it is just that pure desire to do it. You know, I think one of the things that shifted over time is, you know, we think about what's important for leaders. And I think more and more we see that empathy and caring is, you know, rising to the top of what makes an effective leader, uh, which, which is not necessarily something you would expect to see maybe from the military. But, I, you know, I see line officers, uh, infantry officers and others talking about the importance of empathy, the importance of caring for your for those you lead. And I, I know when I was in ROTC, you know, one of the lessons they teach you is leaders eat last. So if, if you're men or women um, getting ready to, you know, eat, you eat last, you make sure there's food for everybody else. If you make sure that all of them have a place to sleep before you go to sleep, it's really about taking care of those you're leading, not so much about, you know, you and your, your position as a leader, your whole job as a leader is to take care of those beneath you, which I think really actually was, you know, instilled in me at a, at a pretty early age through, through ROTC. That's fascinating. I think it's fascinating because when you first started talking about empathy and caring, I thought maybe, you know, I feel like the whole world of leadership is changing based off of, you know, the uh, field of business bringing in emotional intelligence and adopting it. But you're saying it's foundational to the leadership roles, even before emotional intelligence kind of became this trendy word. So this is a phrase that's very interesting to me. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think in some ways, you know, to be an effective leader, you you sort of have to at your core. I mean, we, we hear the term servant leader, but for me, that's really true, right? You, you have to know what your priorities are and, and, and there's always going to be competing priorities, right? It's going to be, we have to, you know, if you're in the business world, we have to make more money. If you're in medicine, it's about access to care and you know, how much money wellness scores now, all these different things. But you really, if you don't take care of your uh, people, the people you lead, it's going to be really hard to be effective in the long term. You can you can always get short term success, but that's not going to be healthy for your organization over the long term if you're not really making an effort to take care of those you lead. Can I counter with your phrase, leaders eat last? with the phrase that I've heard in other professional development settings, which is put your own mask on first from the, you know, the airline safety video. So how do you square those two things? I mean, how don't you have to take care of yourself so you can be in a position to support the people you work with? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a really good question. But I think it's, I think it's separate, right? I think what the, you know, put your own mask on first is, is really a wellness issue for you as a leader, right? So uh, I mean, we can just look at the recent, you know, stuff with COVID and you hear Anthony Fauci talk about how early on he was just, you know, really getting to a point where he was overworking, right? Like wasn't getting enough sleep. And I think it was actually his, his wife, as he says, kind of, you know, pointed out to him like, hey, you got to take care of yourself. That's what I look at, you know, put the mask on because if you get, you know, taken out as the leader, well, then you're not helping anybody. Having said that, right, like that means that you have to do your sort of your own personal wellness, make sure you get enough sleep, exercise, you know, because the other thing is, if you're not in the right sort of mental place, it's really, really hard to, to lead effectively, because you tend to get frustrated, you might get angry, you might lose some of that emotional intelligence 
that Janice was talking about. So I don't see them as competing. I actually see them as uh, complementary, right? You kind of have to do both. You you make sure that you're taking care of yourself so that you can take care of of those you lead. The way we're formulating leadership in this conversation is very hierarchical. I assume in the military, that's very explicit. There are people above others. But is that how you're framing leadership, that there's someone in a position of titular authority who is directing others? Um, I, I guess, so you always have someone who's in charge, right? I mean, it's just the nature of, of, of the world we live in. But I think to me, effective leaders are able to empower and, and sort of capitalize on uh, everyone within their organization, right? And, and I think the military is a great example of this over time, right? They've been successful, you know, not necessarily because we've had great generals and admirals, which is, which is true, but because, you know, privates and specialists and sergeants have, you know, when, when the need was there, they've led, they've led at their small unit level. And I think we see that in hospitals where, you know, we have residents who just are tremendous leaders. Uh, we recently had a resident who, you know, Gwen Hunt, who's one of my chief residents, who completely redid with many of the other residents and faculty and nursing and pharmacy, redid the way we admit patients. She led that from the, you know, sort of from the deck plate up. So I think, you know, to be an effective leader, you have to empower those who work with and for you. So I don't, I don't, you know, I think we talk a lot about title positions, but, but to me, the most effective leadership is when you get everybody in the organization uh, leading within their own sort of sphere of influence, right? So I'm a, I'm a program director. I have some influence. I have a, a title, but there's certain things I, I can't control, but I can try to help influence or shape those things. My residents have tremendous ability to shape and influence things, whether it's quality improvement projects, um, it's mentoring and coaching, you know, other trainees. So I think ideally we want everybody leading at, the, at their own level and, and sort of pushing those, you know, above and beside them to be better at what they do. Right. And in terms of concrete steps, Josh, how do you give them or signal to them they have the permission? Because I know we see in aviation examples of hierarchy in the cockpit and the junior captain not being willing to speak up because it's um, it's the senior pilot who takes command. Uh, so how would, in the case of Gwen or others, how do you let them know, it's okay, you don't have to come to me for permission. You can be innovative and know that I'll have your back. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a couple things. One is communication. So we try to message that and, and message it, you know, over and over. One of the things we like to say in our program is, you know, this is your program, right? It's not my program. It's it's your program, the residence program. So what what do you guys want to do? How can you make us better? What can we do to support you? So I think consistently messaging that. And then uh, one of my favorite phrases, uh, which I heard at a meeting a couple of years ago, and I can't remember who said it, is sort of the, the say-do ratio, right? So if I really... Am I, am I just saying that it's your residency and then I'm telling you everything to do? Or am I, are we saying that as program leadership? And then actually when you bring us ideas, uh, we're like, yes, let's do that. And then we, we actually, you know, run with those ideas, support our residents. Uh, we listen. Uh, one of the other things I like to say is, look, I'm, I'm always willing to listen. I can't promise you I can fix everything, but at least let's talk about what we could do to be better. And then when we can, we, 
try to get after it. If it's something we think we can do to improve, we support the residents. I think the other thing we do is, is we get the residents involved in, you know, most of the hospital committees. Uh, I mean, our hospital leadership has been tremendous for, for years at having residents involved in almost every committee that makes decisions in the hospital. They're not just there, they're, they're there providing input. And I think when you model that and you really show that, yes, we value that, then it sort of builds upon itself. How does that trickle or extend to other health professions that your residents work with? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's similar because what we're trying to do is role model for them. E- everybody has a certain skill that they're good at, right? And I think for our residents, like we're internal medicine residents, right? So we're we're hopefully very skilled internists. We are we're not the experts in speech pathology or physical therapy or pharmacy. So we really try to teach them to, you know, use their team, right? This and and it may be that in certain situations you need the speech pathologist to come in and talk to that patient and that family and, and educate them because they're the expert. And I think ideally what we're doing is is getting them to understand all of us have a role and we're only going to be as good as we can collectively be, which means if, if we're all working together, uh, we're much likely to be you know, better at what we do than if we try to go it on our own. So I think a lot of it has to do with role modeling. And again, when residents do those things, giving them positive feedback, like, hey, I saw you bring in the pharmacist to educate that patient. That was outstanding. You know, great work on that. So we really try to capture these moments where they're doing those types of things and say, yeah, like, yes, that's what we want to see. That's perfect. That's the type of leadership. That's the type of teamwork we're looking for. So how much would you say, Josh, leadership is in terms of building an effective culture? I think it's probably, you know, culture is essential. Uh, And it's interesting, you know, we're in interview season. So I feel like one of the questions I've been asked a lot recently is, you know, what's your culture like? And, you know, I think culture sets the tone for everything else. So we can talk about all these things, but people who, you know, hopefully the people who work with us um, or for the students who rotate with us get a sense of that this is actually what we do, right? So I think culture is what you do. It's the lived experience of what, what my residents feel, what our patients feel when they come visit. So, you know, we continually try to do things to build that culture, right? If we think that resident input is important, we make sure they're a part of everything we do. If we think having residents, you know, develop as leaders is important, we put them in leadership positions to practice those types of things. So we just, we continually try to build that sense of ownership within the residents that, yes, this is their their program. So we've been talking about leadership, but leaders need followers. And I know there is a concept called followership and there's growing scholarship around it. Is that something that you try to inculcate as well? Yeah, there's, uh, I love this topic. And actually, um, Lauren Weber, who's one of our cardiologists, is is really interested in this and has done a bunch of talks on it. It, It's essential, right? I mean, we, we are all leaders and followers. General Dempsey, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, just wrote a recent book called No Room for Spectators. And when I think about followership, he he sort of lays out the concept very nicely in the book. And and he talks about how you you learn to become a leader by being a follower first, right? I mean, which we all sort of 
go through the follower phase. I don't think we're all aware of it as we're doing it, but I think teaching uh, about followership is important, right? So in in a residence role, they might be leading on their team on the wards with two interns and a medical student, but yet they're a follower from maybe the program leadership standpoint. For me, I'm a leader of our program, but yet I'm a follower for the Department of Medicine and for, you know, the chief of GME in our hospital, right? I fall under them and I follow them. So I think understanding that we're all leaders and followers. And I think the important part of that is that we can't forget as followers that we're still responsible partly for the outcome, right? I think one of the problems that we have sometimes is we'll say like, oh, well, um, that's, that's not my problem. Well, actually it is my problem because uh, you know I'm, I'm part of I'm part of this team I'm a follower yes I'm not in charge but my role as a follower should be to inform whoever's uh, whoever's my boss right help them make better decisions help give them solutions and I think if we all take that kind of ownership then we're going to be better collectively right so if if all of our residents think that yes this is their program how can we make it better then we will be better right? Because they're all working towards that that same goal. And in terms of followership, you mentioned tips in, in helping leaders at, a, you know, not in a, at a junior level lead a project is supporting them and getting other people involved and helping essentially being that first follower that they need for to, to run a successful program. So it sounds like you're you're doing a lot of that and and that leadership is that followership as well. Yeah, I think it's just, it's it, to me right. I think it's an understanding of what our roles are, right? It goes back to the question you asked about like how do we get other health professions um, involved, right? Like sometimes, you know, um as an intern, I'll be the leader, other times I'll be the follower, right? Uh, and as an infectious disease physician, I'm very often leading in one area, maybe, but in, in the other area, it's I'm a consultant. I'm a follower to, you know, in some ways to whoever's primarily managing that patient. You know, when I'm on the wards, I might be leading in some of the medical decisions, but some of the discharge planning decisions is our discharge planning team or our, you know, our social work team. And I think, you know, understanding that we go in and out of these leader follower roles is really important. It also allows you to say like, hey, I should be empowering these other people who, you know, might be in a follower role right now, but can take a leadership role for, you know, this specific task or this opportunity. What I think is interesting too is, you know, when you break down, as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, when you break down a lot of the behavioral markers of leadership and followership, it it comes down to some of these emotional intelligence kind of core values and priorities, individual priorities. And, and I just wonder, you know, often when you're doing leadership development or faculty development, and I, I'm sure those that do it have the same question, you know, how much is natural and how much can be learned? And, you know, and in terms of screening when you're hiring, the natural is is interesting. But I think for the purpose of this podcast, I I would love to know what you've discovered could be learned. Boy, I, I think a lot of it can be learned. You know, I, I mean, I think just in my own personal growth and development of things that I've, that I've done or changed uh, over time because someone has given me, you know, an important piece of feedback 
or I've read something or listened to a podcast. I, you know, I think it's while certain people may have like natural, more natural skill or ability, just like anything else. I think, you know, to be an effective leader, you really have to, as I said earlier, you have to make an effort and you have to want to get better. Cause I don't think, I guess I would say, even if you're maybe naturally good at sort of like being a teacher, right? You can be naturally good at being a teacher, but once you understand educational theory and once you understand some of the reasoning behind why we do certain things, you're going to be that much more effective. Uh, and I think it's very similar with leadership. You're going to maybe start out at a certain level, but as you make the effort to study it and you make the effort to, you know, sort of deliberate practice almost, get feedback, 360 evaluations, you can get better and you can get a lot. I think you can get a lot better. It's hard. <laughs> it takes a lot of work, but I definitely think you can, you can improve quite a bit. Can you talk about that process of improvement? How do you get feedback on your performance as a leader? And how do you plow that into continuous improvement? Yeah, this is probably one of the harder things. You know, there obviously there's commercial, you can buy off the shelf types of 360 evals, or you can get folks to come in and, and, and do those types of things for you. You know, sometimes it's just, if you can create the environment where your team is willing to tell you what you're not doing as well as you can. And here you have to be humble, right? You have to be willing to go to your team and say like, Hey, listen, it's been, you know, six months. We haven't really talked recently about how things are going. What do you, what do you think I can do more effectively as a leader? Or you, you, you would just hope that someone on your team would, would come and tell you, and you, you just have to be, tell them up front, like, Hey, I really want to know if I'm messing something up, tell me what I'm doing. I will say, uh, Last year, I had taken over as program director, and that's probably six months, maybe a year or so in. And one of my um, associate program directors, uh, Adam Borelski, who's a phenomenal teacher, basically gave me some very pointed feedback about a meeting that I had canceled and that we were a little bit disconnected as a group. And I was like, wow, like I was not like, was not tracking on that. But it was really important to sort of get us, I think, back on track a little bit of where we needed to go, you know. So I'm glad that that he told me that. I, I it's I think that's the hardest piece is being able to get that feedback from from others. But it's essential to get better. Has the crisis in the global pandemic uh, strengthened or made you question any of your beliefs about leadership? Hmm. I would say it's probably strengthened and and I think in particular, it strengthened the idea that going back to this point about leaders need to have empathy and care about the people they lead. Because I, you know, when we think about crisis, which is what we're dealing with, right? The crisis leadership. How do you lead during a, a crisis? You're going to have a lot of different emotions. People are going to be scared. People are going to be excited. People are going to be angry. And I think as a leader, you have to be able to recognize that you're going to have people that have all these different emotions and you're going to have your own emotions. And how do you deal with um, your own emotions? So thinking about emotional intelligence and the importance of emotional intelligence, I mean, which I always thought was important, but I think, you know, in, in times like this in particular, being able to recognize your own emotions, recognize the emotions of others, and then communicate effectively to those you're leading that, hey, you understand what they're going through. Admit, be humble about your own feelings and emotions. And then, you know, show them like, hey, here's here's where we're going. Here's our vision. And give them confidence that we're going to get through it. So I think, you know, the idea of caring for people, 
emotional intelligence and then humility as a leader. I mean, I think if COVID has taught us anything, it's that we, you know, we, we don't always know the answers, right? And you have to be willing to admit that as a leader, like, hey, I got this wrong. Now we're going to change and we're going to adapt. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's definitely reinforced for me the importance of empathy, humility, and just, you know, caring for those you lead. If, if, we, if we can put in a, a capsulated form some of the takeaways that we're uh, deriving from, from your insights, Josh, you know, this has moved so far from the, the model of the authoritarian leader that uh, as someone who, who parents a teenager, you know, I wish that were the model that we had, but it doesn't always, at least you're in this work and then in practice context, you're really talking about leaders who are empathetic and empowering, that they are giving up some of the control to allow the people they work with to exercise influence in their own spheres and their own areas of responsibility. And that's you know really being effective. And as you say, it taps into the largest network of talent possible. So that'd be sort of number one, this message of being empathetic and empowering. Uh, the other strain I heard that I think has application beyond any single context is that I really was attracted to that say-do ratio and the idea of modeling our values, of being uh, humble and recognizing. This is something I heard with the, um, when I went to a professional development conference for higher ed administrators, and we had a university president talk about uh, his experience. And he said his first day as president, he was in his office and he said, huh, that tree looks overgrown. And the next day he came to work, the tree had been chopped down. And he didn't realize that everyone is watching him and, and trying to please him. And just by that stray comment, the arborist came and removed the tree from his line of sight. And so we may not think that we're modeling as often as we do, but people really look to us. And so to be very uh, humble and conscious of the image we're projecting. And then uh, lastly, the third one that I really seized on is this idea of going in and out of leadership and followership roles. And it's not just in a temporal way, it's in a mutually reinforcing way. So being a follower helps you be a better leader, that it's not something that's sort of granted and static and you hold it for life, that in different contexts and different times, you occupy different roles and that strengthens your ability to be a good leader. Thank you so much, Josh. This is um, this has been a pleasure, and uh, I'm going to take all that, especially the say do ratio. Yeah, I wish I knew who uh, who said that. I just can't remember, but it's 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 been a favorite of mine uh, ever since. But yeah, thank you. That was Peter. Great, uh, great summary. Thank you. Good to see you, Josh. You too, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, Bye, Josh. That was fun. Thank you for listening to our podcast, What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We hope you come back and listen to our future podcasts with your host, Janice Palaganis, and Peter Kahn of the MGH Institute of Health Professions.